Hello and welcome to the Stansberry Investor Hour. I'm your host, Dan Ferris. I'm also the editor of Extreme Value, published by Stansberry Research. Today we'll talk with Jim Osman. Jim specializes in special situations investing. We'll talk all about that, and he's got some good ideas for you. In the mailbag today, actual questions about financial statements. We hardly ever get those. It's awesome. And remember, you can call our listener feedback line, 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. For my opening rant this week, it's impossible for some investors to avoid fraud and mega bubble valuations, but you are not one of them. That and more right now on the Stansberry Investor Hour. Yes, yes, it's impossible for some people to avoid frauds and mega bubble valuations. Who are these people? Well, one group, I think, is venture capital investors. And to say that it's impossible for them to avoid fraud is kind of, it may be seen as controversial because they mostly have avoided it. They mostly do avoid fraud. It's unusual, for example, that a Silicon Valley entrepreneur is convicted of fraud, but that happened this year. It happened in January with Elizabeth Holmes. She was convicted on a few counts of fraud, um, and her ex-boyfriend, partner, former COO of her company um, was convicted on 12 counts. I think she was convicted on four, and he was convicted on all 12 of his counts. And she had 11 counts against her, but three of them, they couldn't make a decision, and they convicted her four of them. And then she was found innocent of the rest. Um, You may recall Elizabeth Holmes. She was the somewhat attractive young woman with the sort of uh, intense stare, unblinking stare, who wore black turtlenecks like Steve Jobs and spoke in a very deep voice, which turned out to be faked. She was faking this deep voice. Um, And she had a company called Theranos, which she founded when she was just 19 years old, dropped out of Stanford. And she claimed to be able to do rapid blood testing for 240 conditions, including cancer and diabetes and then, you know, all the usual stuff you get tested for with your blood um, very rapidly with just a few drops of blood. Normally, you know how this works, right? You go to the blood draw center, wherever that might be. and then you sit there and they slap your arm down and stab you with a needle. And, and it's like one vial full of your blood, then another vial full of your blood, you know, and they're pushing and pulling on this needle. It's semi unpleasant. Some people, you know, get sick and some people pass out. It's not fun. I mean, I've never had a real problem with it. Um, you know, the needles are pretty sharp, I noticed, and most people who, who've done me are pretty good, so I've never had a problem, but I know some people do. Anyway, not fun if somebody could disrupt that industry and make it a lot more pleasant and just do it with a couple drops of blood from, you know, from your finger, like Elizabeth Holmes was claiming. It would be great, but it turns out that their technology didn't work nearly as well as, as they said, really, if at all. I can't even establish that it worked at all. Um, because they were using like traditional analysis on the blood that they collected. So maybe they could collect a few drops of blood. That's not hard, right? But their their system, which they called Edison, named after the famous inventor Thomas Edison, did not work as advertised at all. 
So they were convicted of fraud. And but this woman, Elizabeth Holmes, she raised almost a billion dollars, like nine hundred and forty-five million dollars. And she had people investing in the company, like the Walton family of Walmart and uh, Rupert Murdoch, the the media mogul, and, and and others. And former Secretary of State George Shultz was on the board for a while. I mean, it was a lot of heavy hitters involved with this thing, and it turned out to be a fraud. Now, to be clear, I don't think she set out to commit fraud. I think people get caught up in things, and they get to a point where it's just not working the way they were just so convinced that it would. And they've got a choice to make. You can either say, Hey, this thing doesn't work. And then, you know, you're, you're a big failure. Or you can say it really does work and then commit fraud to try to convince people to give you more money. She did the latter. It didn't work out. She's going to be sentenced sometime next month in the month of October. I think it's October 19th. And, uh, you know, she could get 20 years in prison. And recently she filed another petition, two petitions, really, um, alleging that uh, there's new evidence because one of the people who used to work for her, the government's star witness who testified longer than anybody, he was on the stand for like five days. He came to her house unannounced and talked to her husband, to Elizabeth Holmes' husband, and told her all this stuff. He felt bad about how it went down and the government made it all seem like it was worse than it was and just a lot of emoting and feelings. And then he kind of threw in that he felt like he had done something wrong during the trial. And we don't know what that means yet, but you know, maybe it means that it's, it's, he's just emoting more, okay? Or maybe it means he lied or misrepresented something, right? So I think Holmes has has a right to know that. I hope she gets her trial. She filed another one that said that um, the relationship between her and her ex-boyfriend was not as represented. The government represented it one way in his trial and another way in hers. And, you know, pick which one. It can't be both. And, and of course, the government, you know, represented it to one way to get him convicted and another way to get her convicted. So, you know, I think she's got, it sounds to me, I'm no lawyer. Okay. I mean, I read the, I read the first petition. I'm no lawyer though. It sounds like she has a reason to, to expect to get another trial. We'll see. Point is it's rare. Looks like she committed fraud to me. Also looks like she might have a reason to get another trial. I don't know. But I started thinking about all these people caught up in this, you know, <clears throat> and the investors. And I, I don't think they could have avoided it. And I don't think they reasonably could have avoided it. And I started thinking about venture capital, early stage investing in general. And I'm surprised that we haven't seen more of these cases. And I, I do believe we're going to see many more of them. Um, partially because we're living through the biggest mega bubble ever in history. So that would kind of imply that you're going to see more fraud ever than, than ever in history. Cause you know, thing people, the, the capital starts flowing and people who are willing to tell whatever story they need to tell to get it start coming out of the woodwork and the VC investors, the venture capital guys, I could see where they would be in a position where they're like, well, we can't afford not to participate because of, you know, we need to throw a hundred little bets out there and, and hope one of them just becomes the next Amazon. 
and we're going to have to accept a certain amount of fraud. And they've always been able to accept a certain amount of failure because it's risky early stage investing is. So I can see how they would just be able to accept that they're going to be exposed to fraud and and huge, you know, mega bubble valuations, right? I mean, people financed WeWork up to a $48 billion valuation. I think it went public for $9 billion. I think the market cap's like, what, three or four or something lately? I don't even know lately, but it was some much lower number even than $9 billion, let alone 48 So I don't think these people can avoid it. I think there's intense competition. They can't afford to let somebody else, you know, get the get the early round of financing in the next Amazon. So they do it. You can though. See, you, this is an important way that you are not like professional investors, and that's a good thing. You can avoid mostly avoid fraud. I think if you stay away from the risky companies, right? If you're investing in waste management and Costco and Starbucks and stuff like that, I think you're going to avoid fraud mostly. Um, and you can also avoid mega bubble valuations. Like you have no career risk, right? The, the VC investors and the money managers, they got to keep investing. They have to attract clients. If they say it's a mega bubble and we're just going to hang on to all the cash you give us, investors will crucify them and take their money back and they'll be out of a career, right? You don't have that problem. And that is a very, very good thing. That means that you as an individual investor have a distinct advantage, which is multiplied many times, in my opinion, at this moment in history over all the professional investors. And I think you should use it and exploit it to the maximum that you can. How do you do that? Well, they have to follow mandates. If they're running an oil and gas fund, they have to buy oil and gas. That's been a good bet lately, but I'm just saying, you know, if they're running a tech fund, they got to buy tech, even though it's getting murdered. You don't have to do any of that. So, you know, and if you want to hold cash, you can. You can prepare for a variety of outcomes, of future outcomes in the market. They can't do that. And you know, I've my my prescription has been the same. I think you should hold plenty of cash. Don't buy at mega bubble valuations. Don't buy any more tech garbage, period. Don't buy any more risky tech garbage. Um, that stuff will eventually get cheap. You remember in 2002, there were little tech companies trading for discounts to the amount of cash they held. We're not there yet. So Hold plenty of cash. By all means, hold the stocks of high-quality companies. I mentioned a few a second ago, Starbucks, Waste Management, Costco, et cetera, et cetera, Berkshire Hathaway. And I think you should still hold some gold and silver. And, you know, I sold my Bitcoin um, because I it, didn't, it, it doesn't appear to be doing what I really, really hoped it would do. It just trades like a tech stock, like a vo volatile, risky tech stock. And I didn't want it to do that. So... Yeah, you can prepare. Others can't. That's that's the rant for today. And that is a very, very good thing. Exploit this position to its maximum. That doesn't mean sell everything and go to cash, right? It means prepare for a wide variety of outcomes, right? Cash, stocks, gold, silver, maybe some other things that you know more about than somebody else. All right? Okay, that's the rant for today. Let's now talk with Jim Osman of the Edge Consulting Group. Let's do it right now. 
Look, I think you know by now I'm always trying to tell you the really hard truths, even when, especially when, what I have to say is unpopular. Today, the hard truth is that your wealth is in danger. Everything you may have made in the bull market of the last decade could disappear very quickly. Some of it's probably gone already. This process has already started, and even if the financial markets somehow avoid a devastating crash from here, inflation is still eating 8% of your money every year. I've spent 20 years helping people prepare for extreme market shifts, just like the one we're going through right now in my role at Stansberry Research. I've recommended 24 triple-digit winners, and I called the collapse of Lehman Brothers with near-perfect timing. Well, today I'm issuing my biggest warning ever. If you want to preserve your retirement and your lifestyle in the coming years, you need to act. I recently went on camera to lay out a simple one-step plan for what to do. You can set yourself up in minutes and likely forget about inflation, rising prices, or the worst effects of a market crash for years to come. This plan does not involve options, shorting, crypto, or anything complicated, and it doesn't require perfect timing. The perfect time to act is right now, and you could see triple-digit upside in the coming years. To watch my full interview with the brilliant financial journalist and hard asset expert, Daniela Cambone, simply go to www.crashprotection2022.com. Again, that's www.crashprotection2022.com to watch our full interview for free. All right, it's time for our interview once again. I am very pleased to tell you that today's guest is Jim Osman. Jim brings two decades of fundamental spin-off, special situations, and activist ideas experience, which is used to help his partners identify not only investment ideas, but more importantly, identifying the specific needs of the money manager's investment process, while adding additional intelligence in a modern market where valuation alone is not enough to make a return on capital. Let me also mention he is married father of two, regularly competes in triathlon and Ironman and half Ironman distance. Holy heck, Jim, that's awesome. <laughs> well, let's, uh, yeah, let's not pick me up too much uh, to begin with that. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, it's good of you to be here. Um, so I thought I would actually begin, as we talked earlier today, with my classic sort of first question, which is usually like for people in the money management business or, you know, research analysts or folks like yourself who help investors do what they do, allocating capital. So the question is simply, you know, if, if we ran into each other at a bar and, and I found out you were in finance and I said, hey, Jim, what kind of investor are you? What would you tell me? Fantastic. I mean, it's a great question in terms of what what we do, what I do. So I'm involved in identifying and analyzing special situations. Now, you know, when you put that term across, people kind of think, well, hold on a second. I don't even do that. I don't even know what that is. In fact, I'm a little bit embarrassed to even ask what that is. That can be a problem for, you know, it can be a problem for what we essentially sell um, to our investors, um, not investors, to our, to our subscribers. So what is a special situation? Well, a special situation is a, you know, an atypical, an unusual event 
that will alter the price of the stock sometime in the future. Now, someone's going to say to me, well, hold on, Jim, everything was the price of stock. That's why stocks move. But more specifically, I'm talking about an actual event that you can identify and you can quantify and analyze and uh, look at the risk and look at the reward of that and decide whether you want to play it. So that's as, that's as the simplest sense that I think, and hopefully um, that makes it clear. Right. And we'll flesh that out as, as you um, describe some of these specific right. strategies. This is also called event-driven investing, for example. It's, it's event-driven. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> some sort of event in the future that you can quantify. All right. Actually, before we get into the specifics, though, I'm really excited to have you on at this particular moment in time because most people are spending every day, you know, in between changes of underwear. They're like watching the market fall and and wondering what the heck they should do. So they're, they feel very much exposed to the market movements. But special situations and event-driven that's not necessarily the case with that, correct? Well, absolutely. It's a great point. I mean, we've, um, we were in the midst of updating our study um, for release in the next month or so where we have 22 years of data and looking at um, specifically spin-offs, which is one of those which we can talk about in a second, um, but an event that, that, you know, a company breakup, should we say, is a spin-off that can really um, provide a, a value to the investors. But... But yeah, I mean that's what that's essentially um, what we're looking at in terms of event driven. But uh, yeah, I mean that's uh, uh, you know they, they perform basically over any sort of market environment, and that's a good thing because they're very very specific and they're not market directional. Of course, they get moved around with the market, and I can talk a little bit about that in a minute. But but essentially, you're you're betting on that um, catalyst event that happens sometime in the future. It's not a defensive strategy per se. It's all weather. You're doing this is something you do all the time in all market environments, not just. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know as well as I do that. Um, you know me by now. I don't care for the market. I mean, like, of course, we all we all get. You know, our stocks get moved around by the market. But sure. you know, like, like Buffett says, you know, at the end of the day, you know, everything goes to value. And uh, you know, if you can stomach those, and th- and that's our point. I've talked a lot about emotion recently. Um, and if you can uh, curb that emotion, or not even curb the emotion, because we're all emotional creatures, it's whether you can recognize it. If you can recognize your emotion and handle that, you know, your actually thesis will just play out. Um, so that's a big thing we can, we can also discuss as well. But it's definitely a place for look if you're not looking at it. It just takes a little bit more work than normal. But I think this sort of market requires a little bit more work than normal to, to be in. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Can you talk a little bit about, before we get in, I do want to talk about spinoffs, honest I do. But can you talk a little bit about, you alluded to it a second ago, analytical edge versus behavioral edge? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me give you a little bit of background because okay. you know, I've done a lot of work on this. And, and I think a good investor... Um, a good investor doesn't beat the same drum over all the markets, right? If I'm one of those 24 million new investors that come to the market in the last two years, right, and I'm just buying a stock as it goes up, I'm the greatest thing ever. You know, when it comes to the stage where the market goes down and I'm thinking, well, hold on, why aren't I the greatest investor ever? Because I just haven't done any work, because I just jumped on the back of it, right? So, you know, good investors will last for a longer period. But it's, again, you know, we've got to understand what drives markets, and, and ultimately, there's a few things that drive market. And again, recognizing this is, 
80% of it, it really is your emotional behavior to the markets. And one really is that emotion. You know, we are driven by genetic stress, diet. You know, we come in the morning, we go, oh, we feel really crap today. Oh, we feel great. The sun's out. It's raining. You know, all these things, we've got to take account. They, they, they drive us. Um, crowd behavior. Now, that was a great one in the run-up uh, in 2020, 21. You know, you know, someone said, well, you've got to get in this one. Oh, Peloton. Oh, this. Oh, that. You know, all these names that are around. We've got to get on. We're going to miss it. You know, mm-hmm. fear of missing out is a great one. And as investors, we are dragged towards that. Dan, you better get in this. Or we're all in it. What, you're not in it? Hold on, well, let me get in it. You know, so, and, and there's, you know, what's playing out again is the fear and the greed. You know, if you look back and hindsight's a wonderful thing and I get it, but you look at the top of the market and you can see the amount of greed that was there. You know, there were some stocks that there, you know, Peloton essentially was a, a stationary bike with an iPad on, you know, <laughs> anyone wasn't going to buy those, you know, a handful of people bought those and probably using them for great close drives now. So, you know, you kind of got to step back sometimes because, you know, it's the greed at the top. And now we're seeing the opposite end of that. And like I say, Part of that is recognizing the environment for that. And when you get the real fear, that's when you get real opportunities because you get discretionary selling and just indiscriminate selling, really, from, from investors. So they're kind of the three things I want to highlight initially. And we'll get to special situations in a second, but I, I just want to give you the background on how we get there because I think it's very, very important to understand. I'm not just giving you, hey, just look at this strategy because it's great. So that's the first part. And the second part is... In this sort of market, you've got to realize, and investors got to realize that, um, you know, there's something called efficient market hypothesis. And, and what is that? It's essentially that all the information out there is in the price of the stock. You can't beat the stock for information. You know, years ago, when I was young, uh, maybe when you was young, we could go down, we could get a report from the stock exchange, get back, read it for anyone's get it and get in, right? That is gone. You know, you're never going to beat the market um, that way as well. So, again, so you've got this whole kind of emotional thing going on in the background. You've got markets are efficient. And you're sitting there thinking, well, what am I going to do? Market's gone down. These things are cheap. They're getting cheaper. Um, what am I going to do? So you kind of got to develop um, a process. And I'll bring it back to your question in a second. But you kind of develop a process into what is key um, and how you're going to make money in the market. What is your edge? What is it? And as far as I'm concerned, there's only three ways to make money in this market. Only three ways. Um, the first one is you just know someone that other people don't know. You know something about the stock, right? That's called insider trading, right? We've seen what happens. You go to prison, right? You can't do that, okay? Um, you've got master disseminating information. I mean, we got clients that read um, 401ks instantly or other stuff instantly. They just search for words, boom, it's in their system. They execute a trade. You'll never beat them either. So that's gone as well. And the last part is where special situations come into play. And it's be smarter than everyone else and look when no one else is looking. And, and that's always hard to decide because you're going to say, well, Jim, yeah, of course you're going to say that. But where is the place to look? Well, I'm giving that pool of ideas and it's called spinoffs. It's called corporate breakups. And there's about 30 to 40 decent sized ones happening in the year. And I've got three examples um, that your investors or, or, or listeners will be familiar with at the end, and we can go through those. But but really, I guess you say to me, all right, Jim, great, I'm, I'm getting there. But what is a spin-off? What the hell is a spin-off? You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's one of those things where if you're not looking, you probably won't find it. 
And, and it's sad, really, because, you know, in our work with uh, our, our study with Deloitte over, you know, 20 years now, um, spin-offs outperform the market by an average of 10%. Um, so there's a definitely, I wouldn't say they all make money. I'd say 30 or 40% of the spin-offs that go for a year are zero or negative, right? So there's some pitfalls. But, and here's the big but, X, you know, we had Joel Greenblatt, and I know you're, you're familiar with Joel, yeah. and he wrote a great book, and it's one for your listeners to look at. It's called The Rather Stupid Title, <laughs> Who Wants to Be a Stock Market Genius? Yeah. But you know what? It's probably one of the best books out there, but don't tell anyone. It's excellent. And Joel was at our conference um, last November, and, and what he said was a very uh, – one, one quote he did say, which resonates with me, and his stuff always resonates with me, and he's a great guy, but he said – X marks the spot where you want to dig for gold, and that's spin-offs. So, you know, you can dig. You might not find everything, but you're going to find stuff there. And, and that's the whole point in finding good ideas, you know, just to look around where the, those spots are and dig, right? So that's the whole kind of spin-off area we're involved in, and I can, you know, talk a little bit more about that if you want me to expand on, 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 on what that is. Sure, yes. I know spin-offs is one of the biggest topics in Greenblatt's book, which, like, there are hedge funds that require you read that book, even though it is called You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. It's crazy. Yeah, I require all our people to read it. Yeah. There's another one, Insiders as well, which I require one to read. I think it's just gold, like, that's... Uh, it's so silly. People are like, well, hold on, I read that. I'm reading Buffett's book and I'm going to tell you about value investing. I'm going to tell you about, well, hold on, how good is value investing now? Everything's cheap. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, you know, to be fair, Greenblatt's got another great book that's really about uh, systematic value strategy. But anyway, let's stick with spinoffs. Tell me, like, first of all, let's just assume our, our listener is unfamiliar, Okay. And, you know, we're just talking and how do you tell me what a spinoff is without getting like into technical gobbledygook? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so, so let me just give you a start with an example. You know, people know PayPal. People know eBay. Uh, you know, how many people knew that PayPal was a company within eBay and it was forced to break up and they separated? You know, the rest is history. One was very good, and then eBay kind of stayed still, and PayPal flew, right? Rest, you know, you, you know, it's down the line. But that was a long time ago. But that's more one of the more familiar ones that everyone was with. But the point is, a spin-off is a separation of operations of a company in two or more parts. So if I'm a, you know, a medical company and I've got a, um, you know, a, a, a banana factory within it, and I say, well, hold on, these companies don't fit together. They're worth more broken up than they are together. There's value in analyzing that. So the difference between, let's say, a spin-off and an IPO, and everyone knows what an IPO, and that's why I'm using the example, is I'm going to come to you and I'm going to say, Dan, I've got this great company. I'm bringing it to the market. Um, I want you. It's, it's so good, Dan. You better just reach high as you can to pay me the most amount of money. And by the way, I've got a lot of shares. I'm going to sell you in between. And you're going to say, well, Jim, great. I want some of that. I'm happy. Then the share price drops to the floor, right? Now, the difference is spinoffs are different because they're given to existing shareholders of the parent stock. And so if I'm a, sh a shareholder of eBay and they spin off PayPal, I'm giving you shares of PayPal. Well, it's not necessarily free, but essentially just giving you them. You don't have to pay for them. You don't have to pay up for them. You just get them. Now, a lot of your listeners will notice that along the line, they've got um, shares on their accounts, which are a result of having shares of the parent, and they don't really know what they are because they've got lots of weird and wonderful names. 
one guy, just, just as I remember, one guy came up to me in a conference. He said, Jim, he said, I had McDonald's years ago. It was back early 2000. And he said, I got these shares of Chipotle. He said, I got them at like 13 bucks. He said, I didn't really know what they were. He said, and Chipotle was just kind of starting. And uh, they went up to 21 bucks and I sold them. I thought I was the greatest investor ever. And now they're at 1600 so, so what, what spin-offs do, Dan, is they give you shares of new companies, but you don't have to reach up for them and be the subject of marketing. And that's, where, that's one of the benefits of spin-offs, um, and they come along every now and then. So there's no roadshow. There's no in, – in fact, management have an incentive to get the price as low as possible and keep the deal as low as possible because they want their share options struck as low as possible. Right. If you're a manager of a, of a of a big company and you've got a, a a great company spinning off, right? I don't want to tell too many people about it if I'm getting stock options, right? You, you just want that as low as possible because the stock options are struck usually in the run up to the spin off, and that's interesting because I, I want I want to keep very quiet. I want the stock as low as possible. I want options done down here, and then post spin. I'm, I'm I'm kind of when the stock hits the market, you know, ramping that stock up. So. You know, there's a incentive to get the stock price down. So if you can look at these things, there's a lot of value in them. So not only, you know, can you get great businesses, um, you can get very focused businesses. Um, you can get entrepreneurs in those businesses, which are real, you know, if you, if you analyze them correctly, who are with incentives. And, you know, you, you've got other stuff like IAC and Match.com. Match, how about IAC? I mean, if you say to me, Match, Expedia, um, Lending Tree, if you talk to me like that, everyone's going to know them. If I said to you, they all come out of a stock called IAC, you'll go, IAC? You know, so, you know, IAC is one of those companies that have been spinning off forever, um, which is a, you know, a very, you know, on the face of it, a small enough stock, but it's created about $115 billion worth of value. So, you know, these spin-offs can really create value. But again, you must be look on the lookout for them uh, along the line. So hopefully, you know, I said a lot there, but does that, does that, does that make sense of what a spin-off is? Sure. Sure, absolutely. And there's another phenomenon too with spinoffs that we, we covered them years ago, but we we stopped doing so. There wasn't much of an interest in them. Um, and I noticed there was a dynamic at play sometimes where the spinoff would actually be sold for for a few months because it's not part of the index or something, you know. So and yeah. people just kind of eject it like the guy did with Chipotle. It's just like, well, I don't want this. I just want McDonald's. Yeah. Well, absolutely, and Chipotle is one of those stocks where we, we sort of know about. You know, if I put on something like um, let's see, one spun off the other day, Neog, um, Neog, you know, Neog, N E O G, you'd be like, what's that? You know, and we we done the analysis on the company, we done the analysis of the fact that the parent put a load of debt on it, we done the analysis that we tossed out an index, and our stock's falling through the floor, mm. right? So I'm not saying you guys are going to short it, but I'm saying it provides along the line some sort of value. But to hear to your point, um, index funds, if they get a spin-off within um, one of their holdings, that, and it's not big enough for the holding their index fund, they have to sell it. Yeah. There's no two ways about yeah. it. It just goes. There's no analysis. It just sells. And we, we as a firm quantify, we call that the technicals um, of the amount of selling that can be involved. It's the same way exactly what you say um, when a small investor um, just doesn't know. They just see something appear on their um, appear on their uh, uh, you know balance sheet or, or sorry their their trading account and they go, well, what's this? I don't know. And it looks like a positive PL because it will look like a positive PL. Market's going down and 
Spin-offs are the first things to go in a market fall like they are. Because, and that makes them very, very cheap and a very, very good hunting ground because people don't understand. There's no street coverage. People don't know what they are. Um, they're just, you know, new companies. Orphan Securities is what we call yeah. them. So very, very interesting place to look. And we, we, we look at spawn and spin-offs all the time, really, um, to, to, to look where the value is. And they can just be, you know, just out there and just the wrong price. Right. So... Do you? I'll give you the option, Jim. Do you want to tell me about your spinoff ideas, or you want to save that and talk about another type of special situation that you like? Yeah, listen, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about spinoffs because, it'll, and then I'll give you the three ideas, and you tell me when we're running a little bit um, dinner time, Dan, and I'll and I'll give you those ideas and for the guys to look out. But I think that this is, you know, there's, there's in any sort of catalyst situation, there's soft and there's hard catalysts, right? Um, the hard ones are where there's an actual event occurring in the future that you can quantify. Um, and I think they're the best ones for you to look at, right? There's softer ones like, you know, directors buy-in, um, corporate change, um, restructuring. You know, these things can happen over time. And a lot of it depends on the management. But the real hard catalyst where you say, well, hold on, we've got one stock here, and then we have two or more stocks down the line. And actually, these two or more stocks um, are valued differently because they're different uh, uh, different industries they value different peer groups and they could be there could be some real breakout value and we work on the basis of the sum of the parts are greater than the whole um, so so when these things do break up that's that um, but um, but but yeah I mean the spin-offs um, certainly um, have a lot of advantages over IPOs as I said they're just not sold to you. And they're the first investments, like I say, particularly relevant now if people are scratching their head on where to look, of, uh, of the first things to be sold in the downturn. They're misunderstood. There's little or no coverage. Our, our research shows that over one year, they're, they're, they beat the market by about 10.5%. And then another one is an interesting one, is around there's a two-year tax rule with spin-offs that when they spun off, you're not allowed to, uh, or they're not, well, they can be approached, but the acquirer has to pay the tax. Now, that two-year rule is very, very interesting because what we know is in our study, and again, we'll have the full results of, of the update study in, in a month, um, 35, 35% of those spin-offs are acquired around that two-year time frame because they're very, very focused businesses and people like them. Um, so, and sectors there have included, the best sectors, are the, the most outperformance have included materials, consumer, tech, and industrial. So that's what we kind of look at um, in, in the spin-off space. But is 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 the rub on this, right? It's like everybody wants everything for nothing, right? Everyone wants to tell you, you know what? Uh, uh, Apple coming out with some new phones tomorrow, which they are, I believe, or some new airplanes, and they're going to be great, and we better buy ahead of that. And you know what? It's, again, efficient market theory. Everybody knows that. Is it going to go up? Might go up. Might go down. It's nothing you can put your hands on. It's a soft catalyst event. This stuff is more harder, and, and what we do um, is provide research in terms of that space, and we do all the valuations for you. But do the work in terms of this, and you'll get the results out of it. You know, it's not easy in this market. It's totally not easy for me as well. Um, but, you know, I know where to look. We know where to look. Our clients know where to look for value in this sort of market. So I just want to, you know, highlight spinoffs really as a hard catalyst event where people should look um, for. That's actually a great point because we use phrases like corporate events or whatever. Um, 
Coming out with a new iPhone is not the kind of event that we're talking about. Spinning off an entire other company, that's a hard event. That's actually a great distinction. And and I remember, just one thing, I remember what you asked me now, and um, I kind of get carried away sometimes, but I do listen to you. That's all right. Um, That's all right, Jim. Get carried away. That's why we brought you here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you said to me, what's the, um, what's the, what's, what does the edge mean or something? And I said, well, there's a couple of things in this market. I mean, you need to be, you need to spot what the markets are looking at. Like I say, spin-offs are a great place to spot. So you need to not only have an analytical edge, right? That's the first thing, right? Everyone's going to come to me. Look, everybody, everybody can pick stocks, right? More people can pick stocks than you think. Everybody's quite good at it. What they are bad at is managing the risk because they don't start with risk, and that's what you should always start with is risk, but they're managing, they, they, they fail on their emotion, okay? Market's going bad. Oh, this is awful. I've got to sell it. Macro stuff comes in. Got to sell it. Oh, macro stuff's great now. Got to buy it. You know, that'll kill you at the end of the day. But the second, and so that's what hurts people. The second part is um, the behavioral edge. Now, not many people talk about the behavioral edge, but, but, but what it is essentially... Um, it, it's into two parts. Now, you, you you need to firstly establish your analytical edge, right? We get that. Cheap isn't one of them. You know, everything is cheap. Um, what are you seeing now down the line that the masses are not? Okay, you know, assuming your eighty twenty theory, um, you know, you've got to be part of the twenty percent to beat the, the market in, in this sort of environment. Um, so, establish the behavioural bias. Um, what is your behavioral edge? Establish a behavioral bias for against the name in the market. Right? Is everybody hating it? Does everybody love it? You know, you've got to be go against that. You've got to be a bit contrarian as well. Be aware of these and use that to your advantage. Um, and also look at your own behavioral biases. You know, people say, oh, yeah, you know what? Amazon's great. Always like Amazon. It's the best thing ever. Well, is that you speaking or do the numbers say that? So, like I say, you need to break it down into your analytical edge and your behavioral edge. Once you've got those in place and you separate the emotion and you've got a good place to dig, now we're talking. Now that's when I want to look for good ideas, right? Now I want to add up the numbers. Now I want to see what's going to go on down the line. Now I want to start with risk. Now I want to see my uh, downside versus my upside. And we do a lot of that really in terms of our, uh, our analysis. So, so I just want to fill that in because I know you asked me that. Um, but that's how I look at the world, certainly in this environment where, you know, you just got to be better than buying a stock that's cheap because it'd be 10% cheaper tomorrow. Right. Yeah. You're, you are, um, I guess, I feel like you're describing the, the right, you need to have the right analytical approach, right behavioral approach. And it also helps to fish in a well-stocked pond that other people aren't fishing in. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> And you and me had this conversation, right? It's like um, not enough people are made aware of this space, which essentially is the gold's down there. But if you don't want to do the work and you're not digging, well, you ain't going to get it, right? right? No one's going to come along in this market and give you the golden stock, right? Stop kidding yourself. Get out there, do some work, employ someone to do the work, and you'll get the returns, you know? That's, that's, That's the whole game. And it was too easy the last couple of years, and I think a lot of those people come to the market who thought they could give up work and um, and, and 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 do stock trading for a living have gone back to work, right? So you know you don't want to lose money. It's incredibly difficult to make money, and that's what people never say. It's incredibly difficult to make a return, mm-hmm. but just don't lose it. Manage your risk, 
And these, and one of these characteristics of the um, of special situations, in my view, over the years, is the fact they give you a natural downside protection in terms of the event, and that's very important. Right. That yeah. That right now that should be like hugely appealing to everyone within the sound of our voice. You know, it's a, a, a catalyst that that um, you know moves the stock, other than. Jerome Powell giving a speech, you know, at some conference or something, right? Yeah, I mean, you've got to, you know, your investors also got to analyze what they do right and what they do wrong. You know, always promoting that. I don't want to go too far down the line there, but, you know, you should be looking, did I buy on Mr. Mr. Powell's coming up speech? Did I buy on the Apple iPhone coming up? Never, ever do it on Newsflow. Never. You'll long term be a loser. Okay, on that. Do it on hard events. Do it on numbers. Ignore the wider market. Give yourself a, a identify the risk first, and then the PL se- se- um, second. Start with risk. Always start with risk. What is my downside? How much can I lose here? That's what people start, and that's what most people don't do. They say, "Oh, we could get a great upside. What if that don't happen? Where are you now?" And that's the problem with with a lot of uh, people for losing money. Yeah. Yeah, everybody was all about all the money they could make until they started losing it. And now they're terrified and running for the exits. So, Jim, I, I think we've I think we, we we've arrived at the at the moment that I know a lot of people are waiting for. And if you uh you said you had what, three ideas to share? Yeah, so we have sort of thirty to forty spins a year down of decent market size. There's a lot of small ones. I wouldn't get involved in too many small ones because of the liquidity issues, but um, certainly, it's, it's three names that your your listeners would have heard of, and they can go away. Well, even come to us. We do a small we do a small light product for the small investor as well. But they can uh, experience what it is to look at these um, look at these uh, events. Now, the first one they're, they're all going to know this one is General Electric, right? General Electric, in my view, and I wrote an article and another resource, free resource, um, if your investors want to just uh, log onto my Forbes page as well, Jim Osmond Forbes, and they see stuff like that. GE was one of those ones where every single American got forced into. This is GE. You won't go wrong. It's like IBM. You buy IBM, you won't go wrong. And and you know what? When email come along, um, it was great when Welch was there. It was great in the 80s. That was the thing to do. What he did was perfect in the 80s. And then he handed the reins over the email, and email just let it go. And actually, so much, if you can read my article on there, it's, it's a scathing attack on GE. He absolutely destroyed value. And um, they took a lot of money from the firm as well and just destroyed the company. But what, what it's left with um, is left with a lot of regular investors still believing in GE because that's what they brought up to do and um, isn't, isn't quite what it was. But what it is doing is it's um, breaking up into three parts. Now, some people might not even know this, and um, it's, it's breaking up into a healthcare in Q123, energy Q124, and it's going to be left with the aviation business. So all that multi-conglomerate company that they people grew up with and it's it's spun off a few bits before then as well um recently it's going to break up and that's very interesting to us because then we start adding up what's the value of the sum of the parts what's the value of the healthcare what's the value of the energy what's the value of the aviation you know and 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 people have seen stuff like this before because you know uh honeywell is a great example they spun off residio um they spun off of um 
uh, you know, Resilio was one, Raytheon was another one, DuPont was another one. These are big companies that your listeners would know about that, that have done spins, and, um, and some of them more successful than the others. It does come down to analysis as well, right? So there's not, it's, this is not like a short bet, right? Do not invest in every spin-off. Um, you know, you're going to get some real howlers that, you know, company like like uh, Honeywell, for example, um, dumped, a, you know, and this is an interesting thing in spinoffs. They dumped a billion dollars of their debt, their debt on the spinoff company uh, and Residio, uh, or, sorry, Garrett Motion, Garrett Motion, Residio, they spun off. Garrett Motion uh, come out of bankruptcy on that basis. They just dumped the whole debt. Um, uh, Honeywell flew. And the other one went to zero. So, you know, when, when, when the spin-offs happen, it's not always a spin-off company. It could be the parent company that benefits. And Honeywell took out Jersey and they went to, I don't know, Carolina or somewhere and the stock flew. So, you know, there's, a, there's that one to look at, which is uh, happening earlier next year. General Electric is one for your, for your calendar. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through these, just gloss over them a little bit. Um, there's a lot to them. But the other one is uh, one everyone's going to know, Johnson & Johnson. You know, how many people know that they're going to spin off their consumer health business? You know, just like um, just like Pfizer did, you know, I wrote a great article on Pfizer actually and explained that, you know, Pfizer insiders, and we analyze the insiders as well, which is a very, very important part of uh, companies because people run companies. You know, uh, they had a great track record of buying their own stock. They were buying heavily in Pfizer ahead of the spin-off and the stock flew. Um, but it's the same sort of scenario as these other companies, Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, separating the consumer health segment. Um, and uh, uh, Johnson Johnson is going to retain the, the pharma and medical devices segment. Um, they're going to be valued differently um, and, uh, you know, things like that. So, you know, that, that's the kind of when you dig into the weeds a little bit more. But these are kind of high-level stuff which people should have on their calendar um, and uh, that's going to com uh, complete in Q223. But again, you won't hear much of it until you wake up in the morning and you go, hey, what's this? It's got a weird name. you got like some odd amount of shares on, and you're going to go, hey, it's got a P&L. I don't know what it is. Just get rid of it, <laughs> right? So, you know, you get, you get, and that's, uh, sadly, we haven't come any, any way in terms of knowledge for 20, 30 years. This was the same 30 years ago. People are doing exactly the same thing. Don't tell me the market's got more sophisticated on this. They haven't. Right, so um, that's sadly miseducation or non-education um, of, of of people, I guess, like me, not not pushing the message across, which people should look. And I'm passionate about people winning. Um, the last one is um, again, you're going to know this company, Kellogg. Uh, you know, who knew Kellogg was spinning off? Um, they're going to have a three-way split by the end of next year, three-way, um, and they're going to they're going to separate the cereals and snacks. Um, and plant food based uh, businesses from the fast growing global snacks business. You know, the world is changing, you know, and it's a, it's a great place to look. You know, there's this thing that, you know, breakfast was pushed by all the uh, cereal companies because they, you know, they just want you to eat their breakfast and cereal. We all know now that, you know, cereal uh, is probably one of the worst things to eat in the whole of the day. Where we brought up cereal was the best thing to eat at the end of the day, right? It's like, you, know, you should be in the mid fast into twelve o'clock. Is the, is the you know I'm doing it and it's great. But you know that's that's the thing. We'll brought up. Make sure your kids eat your cereal and they'll be fine for the rest of the day. It's the most important meal of the day, right? And now we know different. So you know this is this is going to break up into three. Um, 
as a great portfolio brand, and everyone knows Kellogg's, Pringles, Pop-Tarts, cheese, it's all, all these sort of things. Um, and it's going to provide significant value for shareholders. And for the longer term, you know, these, these are good um, takeover targets as well. So I just want to give um, those three ideas, and obviously we've got all the analysis and that to back up. But the, the thing about spin-offs as well, Dan, is all the information is not just given right away. It's a process. Now, you've got to monitor the filings. This is what we do, monitor the filings, monitor where the incentives are placed, who's doing the management, um, what sort of distribution is going to be to the existing shareholders, how it's going to be placed. And, you know, all that stuff, all that noise um, is, uh, is, is, is out there and it never gets communicated until that thing lands on your, um, lands on your, uh, your Schwab account or whatever you use. And you're just going to see it and you're just not going to know. And I want to educate investors to say, well, you know, what is it? What have I got? Is it a value? Should I be buying more? Um, you know, I've done uh, uh, some questions for Barron's over the weekend. It's on there. It's called something like um, analyst ratings, right? And here's, here's, here's how exactly how things play out. I was asked, you know, why don't, what do you think of analyst ratings, the buy, sell, hold, and all that sort of stuff? And I've got my views on that. But more importantly, more specifically, is something like GE. One of the, um, I know one of the uh, analysts said, um, you know what, Jim, after the breakup, I won't be covering GE anymore because it's not what I do. So you get a natural dislocation with the analysts to say, well, I was, I was covering cereals, I was covering healthcare, I was covering GE, but you know what, they're all different business now, I don't cover it anymore. So then it drops out. It drops out the whole universe of analysts. And we know I think analysts are getting on the street. Um, so again, these stocks are orphans. They've got no one to look after them, yet they were big companies. And you're sitting there going, well, hold on a second. I don't know what this is. I'm going to sell it. And people like me are waiting for that opportunity because I like cheap stocks that people know no one wants um, or I like to look. And that's why I grab my value. So I just want to encourage people to have a look at that space because um, it really is um, just it's just ongoing in terms of value. And everyone, you know, half a dozen people or half the people on here will go, well, you know what? It's not for me because they can't be willing to do the work. And no one ever said that investing was easy. It's in fact very, very hard work, extremely hard work. And uh, it just makes the market as a as a as a fun fun way of making you think it can be easy sometimes. And it's a great way of fooling you all the time. And if you work on that basis, the market is there to fool you. Then uh, you probably start on the, the right track. Right, Charlie Munger likes to say, "If you think investing is easy, you're stupid." I think he's probably right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. People make it look easy. But it isn't. So that's the real space where people can look. And like I say, I know it's difficult at the moment. You know, my portfolio is difficult. It's under pressure. And so is everyone. And so, is, and I talk to some of the biggest and best investors in the world, and they're experiencing the same thing. I think every now and then, just to give maybe some of the listeners a little bit of comfort, um, every now and then, you know, you're expected to take a little bit of a hit. It's just how you manage those losses. You know, we're all going to take losses at some stage. It's how you manage them. You know, there's no, there, there, there's no, Badness in just selling what you got and taking a step back and saying, well, you know what, let's just let's just have a look at this. You know, there's, that's not a problem. What is bad is if you just hold stuff and you carry on and you have that self-belief um, or opinion or confidence, which counts for nothing really, um, that, that this one's going to come through. And, 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 your, and your investment thesis has gone to tatters. So just, just a little bit of comfort, really, if, that's a, if that benefits from anyone, because I do talk to a lot of um, big, big people, and they're, and they're under pressure as well. All right. Well, it's 
good to know everybody's feeling the pressure, <laughs> not just the, not just the rest of us. Um, so, Jim, we've actually been talking for a little while here, and uh, it's time for my final question, which you're new to the podcast, so you probably maybe don't know what the final question is, but but it is the same for every guest, like no matter what the topic. Sometimes we have folks from non-finance topics every now and then. Same identical question. You're not going to ask me for money, are you? No, I'm not going to ask you for money. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's funny because one of the guests answered, you know, by asking the, the listeners for money one time is funny. But the question is simply, if you could leave our listener today with a single thought, what might that be? I'd say I probably said it in their podcast. I'd say whatever you do, start with risk, not P&L. Okay. Whenever you go to look at a, 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 a new position, a new investment, what is my risk? What is my downside? You know, people are not, pe- most people can pick stocks. Most people will win at stocks. It's the downside they can't manage. It's when it goes bad, they don't cut it. It's when the investment thesis changes, they don't cut it. It's when they keep believing it, they don't cut it. And that's what causes them losses. Most people are good at picking stocks. And all these listeners are probably going to say the same thing. I can pick stocks. And tell me what they're bad at. They're bad at cutting their losses. And they don't start with risk. And no one's ever going to sell that because they always talk about upside, 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 upside. What is it if it doesn't go according to plan? How are you left? How cheap is it? And that is encompassed a margin of safety. That's what Buffett talks about a lot of the times, right? His margin of safety. But people don't really understand that and they never start with that. But start with what is my downside? That was the thing I would leave everyone with. And that's the thing, you know, I have to keep telling myself and not get dragged into emotional, hey, he's got 100% upside. He's got 50. This thing could fly. No. What is it if it doesn't happen? Where am I? Have I got the cheapest stock on ever? You know, KD, um, KD, which spun off, uh, let me just give you one more thing, Dan, just to back that up. KD, um, Kindrel, um, was a stock that spun off of IBM, and we had a short on it. I know your clients don't do shorts, but institutional people do. But it dropped from 21 to 9 or 8. And, um, you know, I was buying that at 8 bucks on one time's earnings. And I thought, it's not a great business, but, you know, on this, I think everybody hates it, one. They've all sold out of it, too. Um, you know, it's a, it's a good, it, it's good enough to get a good, you know, 20, 30% pop and it's up there again. So, you know, it's, it's, you got to think about, um, you know, what is your risk? What is your downside? What can it go to? Yeah, sure. It can go to zero. I get it. Um, is it likely to, you know, what's the odds of it? Probably pretty small. So, um, so, so that's what I want to leave you with. Start with risk, not P&L. Excellent. We may have heard that from other veteran investors who have been around the block and know what they're doing. That's actually a, a, a good piece of wisdom for, for listeners. Thanks for that. And thanks for being here, Jim. Fantastic. I really, I, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Dan. Speak to you soon. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we'll uh, get back in touch maybe in six or 12 months and uh, see how you're doing. Absolutely, man. Big pleasure. Great. Thanks so much, Thank Jim. You, Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was a really good discussion. I hope you enjoyed it because it's a really special sort of niche area of the market. And right now, I would think, is a time when you really want to know a lot more about it. And you can find more about Jim at his website, edgecgroup.com, E-D-G-E-C-G-R-O-U-P.com. 
And, you know, he's got some good, good stuff there. I love when I find someone who has a completely different strategy from most of the stuff that we talk about and still winds up with the core wisdom that like everybody, like value investors and momentum growth, traders, everybody. And Jim, you know, special situations guy, they all say, you know, watch your downside, know your risk first, worry about your upside later or not at all. Just worry, cover your downside. The rest takes care of itself. Uh, you know, I love hearing that. Um, mostly because it's kind of my job to find different ways to tell you that because it's so important and what different, you know, what better kind of different way to tell you that than to just get all these phenomenal investors on here and have them all saying it. And you heard like, I don't prompt them or anything, right? Pretty cool. Pretty cool. All right. Can't wait. I almost can't wait to talk to him again, you know, in six or 12 months. I, I think that was uh, a really interesting discussion into an area that I, you know, we've, I don't even know if we've talked about it once on the show. Okay, great. Let's take a look at the mailbag then. Let's do it right now. One of the most successful entrepreneurs in America over the past 50 years is going public with his fourth and final prediction about a scenario he calls America's nightmare winter. Woo. You've probably never heard of Bill Bonner. But in addition to owning an interest in businesses all over the globe, he also owns more than 100,000 acres with massive properties in South America, Central America, and the U.S., plus three large properties in Europe. And I've been to one of them. It's gorgeous, gorgeous chateau. And I've known Bill for many, many years. He hired me into this business. And he says, we're about to enter a very strange period in America, which could result in the most difficult times we've seen in many, many years. And he's made three similar predictions in his 50 plus year career. And each time it proved to be exactly right. Although he was mocked each and every time. And I remember all of them. This is why I strongly encourage you to read about Bonner's fourth and final prediction, totally free today. It's all spelled out in a free report that we put together called America's Nightmare Winter. Get the facts yourself. Go to www.nightmarewinterscenario.com to get your free copy of this report. Even if he's only partially right, it'll dramatically affect you and your money. So again, go to www.nightmarewinterscenario for this free report. In the mailbag each week, you and I have an honest conversation about investing or whatever is on your mind. Send questions, comments, and politely worded criticisms to feedback at investorhour.com. I read as many emails as time allows, and I respond to as many as possible. You can also call our listener feedback line, 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. First up this week is Wade S., been a while, I think, since we heard from Wade S. Wade S. says, Hi, Dan. Do you have any tips on how to judge whether a company will maintain its dividend? For example, Intel with a 4.68% dividend yield. Given the yield famine of the past few years, that seems attractive. That said, I also have been burned in the past by holding a stock during a dividend cut. Are there any balance sheet trends that correlate with dividend cuts? Thanks, Wade S. 
Um, I think the the thing that correlates with dividend c- cuts is um, paying a lot more than you earn, especially than than you earn in free cash flow, right? The dividends have to come out. That's cash paid out to investors. It has to come out of cash earnings. So you want to kind of make sure that they've covered the dividend um, with enough cash earnings. You know, it should be a couple of times over, many times over. Um, that really is the primary thing that I would do. You you mentioned, are there any balance sheet trends? Well, certainly, you know, if a, if a company's debt has gone up and up and up and, you know, it's maybe a kind of a cyclical business or something, you know, and, and there's reason to believe that the earnings will not cover the dividend at some point, then, you know, you may have a problem. Um, I hope that that really is the answer. I don't want to dilute it with a lot of other gobbledygook. You got to make sure the cash earnings cover the dividend and then develop a viewpoint about whether or not you think that's going to continue. Good question. Another kind of a technical question is by uh, Peter W. He's an Alliance member, Stansberry Alliance member. He says, hi, Dan. When looking at a cash flow statement, there are a number of items that imply a return of capital to investors. These include debt repayment, dividends paid, and share buybacks. How do these numbers relate to the operating and free cash flows? Thanks again. Yours truly, Peter W. Well, so operating cash flow, like the top line of that is the bottom line of the income statement, right? That's the first thing to learn about financial statements. All three of them are interconnected, right? Balance sheets are you know the things that happen in between balance sheets are are earnings and cash flows you know their income statement and cash flow stuff and and so then the the cash flows show those movements right changes in working capital um capital expenditures uh which don't get run through the income statement and so forth so when you get to get to operating cash flow you're basically adding back just in in approximate terms, you're adding back all the non-cash stuff that you took out to arrive at net income, right? So people add back, you know, they take off depreciation amortization. So you add that back, but then to get to free cash flow, you subtract what they really spent in capital expenditures and that depreciation and amortization, especially the depreciation that represents capital expenditures on the, on the income statement. But it's it's a it's a non-cash number. It's a made-up accounting plug type number. The real number, the cash number, is is the one that appears on the cash flow statement. And free cash flow is just very simply operating cash flow minus capital expenditures. That's the basic definition of free cash flow. And you know that's that's how you arrive at that number. And when you get a really capital efficient business, you know, the, the CapEx line is just not that much, consistently not that much. So operating and free cash flow are very similar to one another. Um, I believe that answers your question. How do these numbers, debt repayment, dividends paid, and share buybacks? Um, so, you know, there's um, th- there's actually three sections to the cash flow statement 
those three sections are the operating cash flow section, the investing cash flow section, and the financing cash flow section. So if you look at all the operating stuff, this is where you're adding back all the non-cash stuff. And then at the bottom portion of that, you get a number that's usually called something like net cash provided by operations or operations, you know, cash flows from operations, something like that. Um, then you get your um, cash flows from investing activities like, you know, purchases and sales of long-term or short-term securities and um, additions to property and equipment and so forth, right? So investments. Then you get financing activity, right? This is where you get your borrowing and your, your um, you know, repayments of, of borrowings and your buybacks, right? Because you're just buying back your own stock. It's like you're repaying debt, you're repaying stock, same thing. And also dividend payments are in the financing section. So it's, it, you know, it, it just makes it a little easier to separate these items. And then, you know, at the end of it, um, towards the bottom, you get the change in cash and cash equivalents, right? It's like, um, it's like a bank account, right? You start at the beginning of the month with X in cash, you pay all your bills, you know, you pay your expenses, um, which it would really be an operating cash flow type of a thing. Um, and then you, you know, you, you make debt payments, right? You got a mortgage, you got credit cards, whatever, right? That's your financing section. Um, and then maybe you also, you're an investor. So you have an investing section too. You're buying and selling, you know, short-term, long-term securities, whatever, um, making additions to your property, um, or, you know, selling property, whatever. So you got all those same things in your real life. And the net result is, is at the bottom in the change in cash and cash equivalents from one period to the next. I hope this answers your question. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I'm pretty sure I answered the thing about the operation, operating and free cash flows. But you mentioned debt repayment dividends and share buyback. So I wanted to you know, go through the three sections for you. Anyway, um, if not, write in again. You know, we can do this again. It's great stuff. And let's see. Next this week is um, Aussie Stu from Down Under. Love hearing from you, Stu. Stu says, G'day, Dan. The show is still outstanding and haven't missed an episode. Great stuff. Thanks. Uh, and then he says, a few questions for you. At first, are gold, silver, and the miners cyclical? They obviously have their ups and downs. But for example, other commodities seem to move based on supply and demand. So they go through natural cycles like energy today. Are, are gold and silver based more on macro events, inflation, bear market, war, et cetera. And so depending on what's happening in the world, they could stay down or up for the long term. Second is to do with position sizing and selling. Many Stansberry advisors suggest a maximum 5% maximum position size. However, if a stock appreciates considerably and say moves to 10% of your portfolio, some advisors suggest selling a portion. Wouldn't that then reduce the effect of compounding your returns? I'd like to hear your thoughts about this. Thanks, Dan. Have a great week, Aussie Stu. Stu, second question first. Some people do advocate this. I don't. Look, if you got a great position and it's doing great, like if you have, 
you know, Berkshire Hathaway and you start out with 5%, 5% and it eventually becomes 10 or 15 or percent or whatever it is. Do you, what, do you need to sell it to get it back to five? That doesn't make sense to me. Having said that, there are professional strategies that do this. They rebalance once a year. So, you know, you got to decide for yourself what kind of an investor you are. But I don't know if you buy, if you're in the business of doing bottom up analysis on great companies and you want to buy a great business and hold it for the long term, I don't see where the rebalancing comes in. Maybe if you're in a bubble and everything's gone up and everything's soared out of sight and you know everything's eventually going to correct, I don't know, maybe. Even then, hold on to the great ones. Um, so the first question was, are gold and silver in the miners cyclical? You bet your sweet bippy, they used to say on an old TV show. Yeah, yeah, they are way cyclical, super cyclical. And yes, gold does have this sort of macro monetary aspect to it. Um, silver is a different animal. Silver is mostly mined as a byproduct of other things, you know, um, copper, lead, zinc, etc. So that's a whole different animal. If you look at the long-term charts, you can see what's going on. Gold is kind of, it's cyclical, but it's mostly up and to the right because the money printing situation is not going to ever change. You know, it'll be cyclical, but it won't change over the long term. I think, I personally think gold is a long-term holding. Gold mining stocks, no, they're highly cyclical. They're a cyclical type holding. I think that you should be buying them now and holding them for several years, but Eventually, you will have to sell them. And, you know, I'll sell my gold mining stocks. I'll probably never sell my gold. Um, same with silver. I'll sell the stocks. I probably won't sell the metal. But silver is spikier. I've noticed this just on a long term chart of, you know, spot silver prices. You see that it's, it kind of almost goes sideways and then it has these huge spikes. So, you know, selling into the spikes is a reasonable strategy. <clears throat> Um, as far as, um, you know, the, you, you're asking about the, basically the role of macro events. That was part of your question. Yeah. Um, certainly for gold, right? Um, people buy gold as a safe haven and there's one, there's a theory out there called the milkshake theory, uh, where folks are saying, well, look, we think that, you know, the dollar is going to suck the liquidity out of foreign markets and they're going to need more and more dollars. So they're going to inflate their own currencies. And the safe haven is going to be basically everything in the U.S. Um, and gold, you know, the dollar, gold and even U.S. stocks. Um, so that would be a good scenario for gold with, that you wouldn't expect. Right. And right now we do have the dollar at like 110, the Dixie index. So. I think the milkshake theory is looking pretty good, but that's off the point. The point is, yes, macro events influence gold, and and I think that's I think that's why you hold gold, because the macro can get really out of control. Governments can and will get out of control, and I think we're there with a nine trillion dollar Federal Reserve balance sheet, trillion dollar budgets deficits, and politicians saying spend, spend, spend. They've they've lost all sight of of def, debts and deficits right? Tens of trillions of dollars of debt. It's just, it's all out of hand. Hold, hold your gold. Good question though, Stu. Next up and last this week is Mark K. 
And Mark K says, hi, Dan, I appreciate your insights and passion towards broadening ways we may think about managing portfolios. As you've mentioned time and time again, you have a bearish outlook on the markets for many reasons, to which I do not disagree. One of the many drivers of the current negative outlook has to do with inflation and the manner in which inflation is being handled by our Federal Reserve and U.S. government, to which you and I would prefer that these two entities do much, much less handling. <laughs> yes. Inflation currently seems to be heavily driven by the MMT-like policies. I would appreciate your thoughts pertaining to the effects of the heavy money printing that has occurred, especially since early 2020. It seems difficult or more accurately confusing to have a near-term bearish outlook, which I do when we consider the delayed effect of so much money, an unfathomable amount having been printed and not yet fully appreciated and cycled and multiplied throughout the economy. Anyway, thanks again. I am an Alliance member and a fan of the work done by you, your guests, and the entire Stansbury team. Be well. Mark K. Thanks, Mark. Um, so, yeah, the argument here is if if the money gets lent and spent, then we get what people associate with inflation as, you know, rapid or frenzied, <laughs> this might be a better word, economic growth, um, nominal economic growth. Um, so that could mean the stock market would be going up too. So, you know, we're, we're, there's a disconnect. I think the disconnect is that inflation hurts everybody and it hurts every business. Um, if you look at, just look at like the PE ratio of the S&P 500 and take it back as far as you can get it. And you'll notice something like it's under about 15 consistently during the highly inflationary 1970s. And it's, you know, 15 or better most of the rest of the time. And I think that is because it hurts all businesses. It just hurts everybody, right? If you have a business that does, uh, you know, 30% returns on capital, low, you know, low capital expenditure, efficient business, and um, inflation's 10%, that, well, that 30% became 20%, right? Which is still nice, <laughs> but it's less. So therefore, it should be discounted in the market at a lower valuation. So that's that. Um, and as far as the money being printed and not yet fully cycled and multiplied throughout the economy, um, what if it never gets that way? That's been, that's been the issue all along here. We only got inflation in the CPI when the government showed up and it kind of became, instead of the multiplying effect throughout the banking system, the government just said, well, we're going to print a bunch and put it in people's bank accounts and, and, and spend it ourselves. All right. So, you know, um, I think I don't, I don't see how we get that multiplier effect if we're in a recession, maybe we're headed into a deeper one. There's inflation. Um, you know, housing affordability is, even though housing prices have come off, the affordability is still at all time lows. That's a big expenditure that banks are involved in. Like, I, I don't see it happening. It, it's There's still this depressing effect of the lack of the multiplication through the banking system. And, and it doesn't look like there's any reason to believe that that will change anytime soon. I hope that's a satisfying answer for you because that's all I got. It's a great question and it's something, it's like an ongoing thing to think about. That's another mailbag and that's another episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. 
We provide a transcript for every episode. Just go to www.investorhour.com, click on the episode you want, scroll all the way down, click on the word transcript, and enjoy. If you like this episode and know anybody else who might like it, tell them to check it out on their podcast app or at investorhour.com. Do me a favor too, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, help us grow with a rate and a review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at Investor Hour. On Twitter, our handle is at Investor underscore Hour. If you have a guest you want me to interview, drop us a note, feedback at InvestorHour.com or call the listener feedback line 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. Till next week, I'm Dan Ferris. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. To access today's notes and receive notice of upcoming episodes, go to InvestorHour.com and enter your email. Have a question for Dan? Send him an email feedback at InvestorHour.com. This broadcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered personalized investment advice. Trading stocks and all other financial instruments involves risk. You should not make any investment decision based solely on what you hear. Stansberry Investor Hour is produced by Stansberry Research and is copyrighted by the Stansberry Radio Network. Opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the contributor and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Stansberry Research, its parent company, or affiliates. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this program as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of opinion. Neither Stansbury Research nor its parent company or affiliates warrant the completeness or accuracy of the information expressed on this program, and it should not be relied upon as such. Stansbury Research, its affiliates and subsidiaries are not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided on the program. The statements and opinions expressed on this program are subject to change without notice. No part of the contributor's compensation from Stansbury Research is related to the specific opinions they express. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Stansbury Research does not guarantee any specific outcome or profit. You should be aware of the real risk of loss in following any strategy or investment discussed on this program. Strategies or investments discussed may fluctuate in price or value. Investors may get back less than invested. Investments or strategies mentioned on this program may not be suitable for you. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, and is not intended as a recommendation that is appropriate for you. You must make an independent decision regarding investments or strategies mentioned on this program. Before acting on information on the program, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and strongly consider seeking advice from your own financial or investment advisor.